You are listening to Natural Born Okay, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stop, stop, stop. <clears throat> I just want to say, if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Get access to these episodes in advance and go behind the scenes with lots more cool content. Join us on Patreon. Okay, that's all. Uh, on with the show. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 177 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we start this episode, I just want to mention that Maestra Maria, an amazing Iwaskero that I met many times, she died not long ago. And I sat in ceremony with her on numerous occasions and she was an amazing maestra. And I wish her friends and family all the best. I talk more about Maestra Maria over at patreon.com forward slash alchemist if you want to go over there and check that out. An excellent way to support the podcast. Sadly, another maestra that I encountered in the Amazon, Maestra Olivia, has also died uh, not long ago. But um, she died getting shot in the heart five times. Uh, In fact, she was murdered. And um, it seems that she was murdered because she was fighting to protect her indigenous territories from the greedy and corrupt multinational corporations that want to control the indigenous people's territories because there's oil there and other resources, money basically. That's what it always comes down to. So Maestra Olivia, she... um, died a martyr's death, I would say. And um, both Maestra Olivia and Maria are amazing human beings, or were. And uh, I still have their songs, their beautiful Icaros, and you can also check them out yourself on YouTube if you Google their names. Um And in Olivia's case, I think uh, it's important for everybody to know that uh, you can no longer just murder these indigenous people. You could 50 years ago. Nobody knew. There were no cameras. There was no internet. Nobody knew what was going on in the Amazon. But the times are different. The times have changed. We now know. And we cannot sit by... And just watch the atrocities that's happening to the indigenous people in the Amazon, in North America, in Scandinavia, Australia, in Africa, all over the world. So keep that in mind. Ha wa 
And uh, now, time for this week's episode, which will deal with something completely different in terms of topic. We are going to focus on Scientology. I would not call Scientology a religion. To me, it seems to be more of a weird thing that just happened to become very big and profitable. But uh, who am I? I don't know much about it. But my guest does. And in this episode... My guest is author, theater director, actor and musician Sans Hall. And she has recently released her book Flunk Start. In this book Sans Hall chronicles her slow yet willing absorption into the church of Scientology. So thanks for being on the podcast. I am delighted to speak with you Alex. So could you... Explain a bit to the listeners who you are and uh, a bit briefly about your work. Yes, um, I I guess you would say that most of my work revolves around words. I am a writer, uh, just as your listener may know, just published a book called Flunk Start, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology, which is a memoir, and I'm also the author of a novel and uh, actually a book of writing exercises and essays about the craft of writing. And I'm also a professor at a liberal arts college in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called Franklin and Marshall College. And I am also a singer-songwriter with a CD out called Rustler's Moon. And I'm also often involved with theater as an actor and director and playwright. So I'm very interested in words. And in fact, one of the things that I came to understand about my time with Scientology, which was rather a surprise to really um, see it and to be able to write about it, is the gift that that strange church gave to me in terms of words, when I hope we'll talk about that a bit further in the podcast. Maybe it's different these days with the internet, and I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when you became invo- involved with Scientology in the beginning, but uh, how do you actually get sold on the concept from the beginning? Because I've been approached by them, and maybe it's different because uh, you can Google things now, but... Um, it it seems hard to be convinced uh, with all the documentaries and stuff on online that you can read. What, what was it that made you feel like, oh, this is something I would want to join up? Well, I think that you have framed that question quite correctly, which is that when I when the church became began to appeal to me, there was no internet. And it's really hard to imagine now when we, I Google and Wikipedia all the time. I'm so grateful for those resources online. But, uh, and I would think that 
were I getting involved now, I would Google and I would turn tail and run because there's so many stories. But in my particular case, although there were lots of rumors are out there, and this was in 1985, in that kind of era, there were lots of, earlier, 1982, um, there were lots of rumors. Once I, what happened to me is I met, <laughs> I met somebody, isn't that the way it happens? And I fell in love with him, Jamie Font, he was a musician. I played, I fell in love with his music, which was jazz, which was new to me. And um, little by little, I was introduced to his religion, and little by little, and this is what I try to chronicle in the book, I try to make it, I try to bring the reader along with my own adventure. It was very specific to me, but as we learn in, in our younger school years, so often in the specific, the reader can then take in then and supply their own gener their own experience, and that's my own effort to say, here's, I'm a pilgrim, I was looking for things, and this particular thing came along with my particular background and appealed to me for these reasons. And one of the great things that's happened as a result of writing the book is the number of people who have written me, friends and acquaintances, but also absolute strangers, to say, I'm so grateful that you outlined your journey it allowed me to take a look at mine, my own pilgrimage, what I'm doing with my own life in comparison to yours, what I was up to, people my own age, what I was up to, what you were up to, but also that sense of thank you for letting me have an idea of why so many people get involved in Scientology because from the outside it looks wacky, but you allowed us to come in and understand, well, this makes sense and this is certainly interesting, and I would actually find that intriguing. And so that's what I try to do with the book, is to pull the reader along with me so they see both how I became entranced and then why I eventually had to leave. Do you think it's very hard for them to recruit nowadays, or do they go after those people who are uh, very desperately, you know, heavy into some addiction or depression and they just will turn to anything that could help? Well, I'll preface my answer to that, Alex, by saying that I don't know, but I would think that they are doing what they always did. They, 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 whether you come in with a friend who's already in the Church of Scientology or you are drawn to a lecture or you pick up a book or you take their free personality test which asks are you really happy that's quite a question are you really happy that they find what's called a ruin it could be the fights you're having with your boyfriend it could be the fact that you're drinking an extra glass of wine at night and wish you weren't it could be that your finances are low and they will assure you that Scientology will answer those problems. Now, who is the person that actually believes that? What are the steps they take to ensure or to keep you engaged with that idea that now I'm solving your boyfriend problem, now I'm solving the fact that you're not having that extra glass of wine, now I'm solving the problem that your finances are better. If those things aren't actually happening, that's one of the great mysteries of any religion. 
I mean, Alex, you early on said you don't think that Scientology is a religion, but I think that a, a group that addresses itself to issues of ethics and morality that has um, at its center the concept of man as a spiritual humankind, there's a spiritual being, that those are the areas that religion takes on. I don't necessarily, I see why you think it's kooky and odd, but I actually think it does fulfill, if we were to define religion, uh, the definition of a religion. A few episodes ago, I talked to a person who'd left the Mormons, mainly because they were stealing all his, all his money and uh, they, the leaders of that religion were, were very corrupt. So he disliked the organization, but he said that the life in the Mormon community was actually something great and they were all nice people and there was nothing wrong with that. Is it the same in Scientology that if you like ignore all that other things, you know, there's also some advantages or good things that come out of it? Absolutely. I think that's one of the points I make in, in my, my book, Flunk Start, is that one of the reasons, the probably the biggest reason I stayed as long as I did, is I had a wonderful community. And uh, they are, and still are, those who are still in the church, and some, like me, have left of, that, of those group of friends. Maybe there were about, you know, eight or ten of us that we had, we had a really close bond. And that sense of community... I think is also something that a religion offers, that you have a shared reality, something shared you're looking at, and there's something tremendously attractive about that. I often am in theater, and I think theater offers a very similar sense. In, when you're doing a particular show, you're with that group of people for maybe three or four months, getting that show up and performing it, you create such a tremendous bond, and it's a huge loss when you when you you know, when you, when the show closes and you have to take off again, it's but it's one of the very attractive, even addictive things about um, shared artistic endeavors, whether it's a dance troupe or a, and I think probably many of your listeners have something they do. They're in a weaving group or they're in a reading group or, but there's something about the shared endeavor that's tremendously sweet. And I think um, that is often, uh, I mean, I just heard a story from a young lady at my college, a one of my students who said she could not understand why her grandmother stayed being a Catholic because it didn't seem like her grandmother was very Catholic in her you know, in the way she talked. And she finally asked her grandmother that, and her grandmother said, because of the, I get to see those people once a week. That's my group of people, and I know they're going to look out for me when I get old, and I've looked out for them and their children. That's a group I have. And I think there's something really, um, there's something very important about that and, and ancient, an ancient need, you know, that people have, which is, I think, one of the reasons that organized religions, in spite of all the terrible stories that are told about Mormons or, you know, Seventh-day Adventists or, you know, Catholics and pedophilia and Scientology, that, that they continue to exist is because of this beautiful bond that so many people feel that they have within that church. And that's why it's so excruciating when you have to leave. One of the readings I gave recently in the town of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in that audience were two young ladies. They were probably 18. 
And they were both trying to leave their Seventh-day Adventist religion. And they had come to the reading to some degree to get advice from me how to do that. And I said, the problem is you have the problem I had, which is you have friends and I didn't have family. They have family in addition to friends. And that as long as you stay in touch with those friends, it's going to be very difficult to leave because they're still in and you're out. And that's a problem because you, you yearn for this sense of companionship again. So I do think it's that you're, you're the friend you spoke, the person that you spoke to about Mormonism. I think it's quite similar in that regard. You as a writer, because I never read uh, L. Ron Hubbard's books myself, but and he's written many. And now with perspective, is he is he a good writer? If you disregard everything around Scientology, but you know, as as just as a writer, that's such a great question. I would say I'm not entirely sure because I have not gone back to reread much since I left, which was I really left a long time ago. You see. But I was so embarrassed by the fact I'd been a Scientologist, I never talked about it. I was, I pretended that 10 years of my life or seven years of my life hadn't happened. So it took years for me to actually turn and look at it and say, actually, those years weren't squandered. There was actually something useful about those years, which is why part of the title is called Reclaiming That Decade, Lost in Scientology. But I would say, if I think back, I would sometimes be embarrassed by certain of his writings. Um, I certainly thought his the little bit I looked at of his science fiction, I didn't think much of it, if him being a sci-fi writer. I was kind of down on science fiction anyway, but I didn't think much of that writing. But when, when he was writing about things to do with ideas of ethics or ideas of infinity and other topics like that, he could be quite persuasive. I think his philosophical writings, when I think back to who I was then, and let me make sure that everybody understands that's about three decades ago, I thought that he wrote uh, eloquently about those things. What you said reminds me of, there's a girl at work and she's only like 20 years old and I don't know how it happened, but she only has one hand and she has a some sort of plastic hand on the other arm and she always hides it uh, in her body language whatever she does she o- she always hides this hand and I, I i i can't say it to her but i want to say you should get rid of that bad looking plastic hand and you should just put on a metallic hook and just have it in front of you and say hey check out my hook and sh- you'll she'll I I bet that would be very attractive, actually. It, it would look almost badass. It would be badass. I hope you get to know her well enough to be able to say that. That's such good advice, you know, because I think one of the great things when I was when I was working on the book and I finally was able to say out loud, and I tell you, it's hard for perhaps your listeners to, or even you to understand how hard it was to say the phrase, I was a Scientologist. I couldn't even say it when I was a Scientologist. I had, I was, I had no, I had such a hard time saying, oh, well, I'm a Scientologist. It was embarrassing to me, which should have told me something, obviously. But when I gradually began to be able to 
say it out loud. And when people would ask, what's this, what's your memoir about? And I would say, well, it's about these seven years I spent that for a long time I thought were squandered, that I'd wasted these years in Scientology. And I would get about that far. And there were so many people who would say, oh, my God, I wasted seven years of my life when I went to Detroit and I, with this guy and I got really involved with his family. I just it's just a nightmare and I wish I'd never done it. Or, oh, my God, I spent five years and, you know, in this terrible marriage and, I, and that so many people have their little chunk of years that they think of as lost, that they think of as wasted, that they wish they hadn't done. And it was tremendous, uh, it was a tremendous solace to me, a great comfort to me to realize that I was not alone in thinking that there was a chunk of my life that I'd wasted, that, that a lot of people feel that way. And that one of our, the things we have to do and especially I think the kind of spiritually minded person who's presumably listening to your excellent podcasts is that we have to figure out how those years made us who we are and turn and face them and say, okay, maybe they weren't lost. Maybe there was something I got from them that I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't gone through those years in the way I went through them. And I do think there's something powerful about examining those lost years of our lives or those escapades that we were involved in that we are ashamed of to see, well, what's, what's there that's going to actually be positive, if, if you get my point. It doesn't really matter if, it's, if Jesus was real or not, but the first 30 years of his life is called the lost years. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's true, but you always hear this thing with Scientology that they you know, force you to tell everything and then they, they have leverage. Is it, how does that work if it's true? Well, again, to, to just sort of state where I was, I was in the church um, at the tail end of the time when L. Ron Hubbard was still alive. And at that time, while there, was, there were scandals attached to the church, my own experience was nothing but pleasant. And my understanding was there's something called the auditor's code. And the auditor is the Scientology word for counselor. And the auditor is sitting opposite you. It comes from the word for listening, right? To audit something, not in terms of taxes, but to listen to somebody. Um, that you would, you would cough up what might have happened in your life or transgressions you might have committed or sorrows that you had. But the idea was that that was confidential. Then, about 1987, 86, L. Ron Hubbard died, and David Miscavige became the head of the church. And it appears to me to be that things have really changed under David Miscavige, and the sort of incident or example that you offer of your confidences being used against you is a relatively new phenomenon. I do know that some auditors pride themselves in not writing down the details of what you tell them, but only what your reaction is so that there is no actual written uh, record. But I understand under David Miscavige that certain auditing rooms now have 
actual video cameras in them. And I just think that's appalling and shocking. And I think I would have found it appalling and shocking were it had it been true in my time in the church. So I think there's a lot of stuff that shifted that makes the church a very different one than as odd as it was under Hubbard, that it's it's more dangerous and I think more um, and just scarier in general uh, under the kind of um, changes that Miscavige appears to have implemented. From my uh, limited understanding, I think it's pretty clear that the current leader is some sort of power-hungry, greedy individual. But do you think uh, the founder, Hubbard, do you think he did it all with good intentions? I mean, was it genuine where he was coming from? It's such a good question. Um, I think that it started there. But that I think, and I'm intrigued by this concept of what makes a religion a religion. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a scholar of these topics myself, and I'm, I'm struck that the root of the word religion means to bind yourself. You're, you bind something. Another meaning is to read over and over. People argue, but that idea of binding yourself to something, and I think that when Hubbard started, it was a self-help book called Dianetics. And what happened was Dianetics had as its main idea that if you are troubled by something and you find yourself freaked out or angry or sad, that um, especially sorrow and anger, that usually there is a chain of incidents that's kind of been re-stimulated by the most recent, like the most recent fight with your wife. And that if you track back through earlier similar incidents, you will get to the one that's earliest on what's called the chain of them. And once you discover the earliest one, the whole link of them will go away and you won't react any longer to that particular button being pushed. And that was the idea behind Dianetics. And what I understood happening is kept people were doing earlier similar incidents, but they'd jump from this lifetime to say something that happened you know, they're, you know, in a lifetime that they can imagine was their last lifetime. And then they might go to a lifetime that's, you know, the the Hittites or a, life, a lifetime that's, you know, Neanderthal man or who knows. Is this imagination or is this East, East Indian, Eastern religions all believe in reincarnation, so it's not all that unusual to believe that we've come back again, right? That many, many religions in the world do that. But that's where I believe Hubbard began to create the religion known as Scientology, which came out of Dianetics, which was a self-help idea. The root of the word Scientology merely means... If you look at what it means, L-O-G-Y means the study of, like biology or psychology. L-O-G-Y means the study of, and science actually comes from our word for knowledge. So his idea was it was the study of knowledge. And so early on, I think his teachings were around that, were around how can we know things more fully But then I believe he kind of got this idea, well, if it's a religion, it's got to have a creation story. It's got to have like a mythology. And that's where I wonder if things, if the power, the money, 
the sort of euphoric high of, wow, people are believing this, may have created something else. I don't know, and I would never, I don't think anyone knows, but I just wonder about that sometimes. If he created a mythology and that this sort of more pragmatic, how do you deal with life in very pragmatic ways, the study of knowledge, knowing how to know, which was, I think, at the basis of those early years in Scientology, then it leapt into this much more um, previous lifetimes and um, how we as a collective on the planet all experience something icky that we all have to, you know, look at in our in our sessions and when we are trying to get, you know, th that to me, I wonder about, I just do. And I never got that high up in the, in the, what they call the bridge to take a look at it. But many people did and they swear by it. So you know, religions, you know, as Joseph Campbell famously said, one man's religion is another man's myth. And one man's myth is another man's religion. And it's important to, you know, respect where we can, as long as they're not doing any harm to others. The concept of the chain to find the source of whatever issue, that sounds pretty logical in, in my opinion. And also I believe that, although I don't think psychiatry was particularly into it in 1952 when Dianetics was published, I think they've come to, I think it's a very common idea now. When Hubbard published Dianetics and he was, you know, what you do your the fetus in your belly uh, can be affected by well that was in the 50s that was laughable right people took chloroform to have their babies and you know they drank and they smoked and there was there was and now there's a complete belief that what you do smoking drinking the music you listen to even the kinds of you know it affects what's in your body so that really shifted in 50 plus years as well. So uh, some of it was very logical and I think that's what attracted a lot of people to it actually. Was that sense of well it's hard to refute that. How do you argue with that idea, you know? I just came up with a theory listening to you uh, so bear with me but when when it concerns authors uh, specifically authors that write fantasy and science fiction they have a they do something that most other authors don't do and that is they usually create a world like uh, Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth or you know Star Wars or you know yeah Dune that's a better example and uh, Hubbard maybe since he was a child his biggest dream was to become a world famous science fiction writer and maybe he was a failure at that and then this Dianetics happened to become very successful and he just couldn't actually, he just couldn't help himself. He just, you know, he had that urge to create, you know, a, a mythology and that and it just happened, oh, this works and then he just started to weave it in somehow. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very apt. I understand that his Battlefield Earth series is very much just what, it's, it's a science fiction series. I think there's seven or ten books in it or something. But I, I understand that he actually details what is his sense of the mythology of what happened on planet Earth. So where is that distinction between a um, anything, you know, speaking of Christianity, you know, did 
it's pretty clear that Jesus was crucified. We've got, you know, the historical Jesus is something that fascinates me, and I read a lot about him. And then, then there's that sort of mysterious thing. Uh, well, did he indeed um, rise from the dead? Did he indeed, you know, enter into heaven? Are those things that are wishful, or are those things that people witnessed? And, of course, that's that myth versus religion thing that I just mentioned. And I think where... Um, where uh, the Battlefield Earth series is uh, concerned, just to sort of support the point you just made, it's possible that he just created a religion that was basically a story that he wanted to tell. And on one level, he realized that his name would always be attached to this story. Amongst the things I find absolutely remarkable is that Scientology, This I think this actually took place before L. Ron Hubbard's death, and I certainly think it's been happening since. They have had all of the writings of L. Ron Hubbard that have to do with Scientology etched into something like plutonium or something so that it would, the writings on those tablets would actually withstand like a planet being torched by an atom bomb or a nuclear bomb um, so that if people came along to this planet four billion years from now and found those plaques and could decipher them, they would still have Scientology. Now that's a tremendous sense of your own story. It's remarkable. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you ever happen to meet him or listen to him speak live or something? Never, no. By the time I joined the church, he was pretty much in hiding from the government, which should have told me something. Uh, he had enormous stuff after him for tax evasion and all kinds of other stuff. So he was in hiding somewhere in Southern California and never, ever came out of hiding. And he was also quite paranoid at the end of his life. In my book, um, I actually have a big footnote where I write about his last years because I and his death because I think it's absolutely fascinating the man that's you know came up with this extraordinary ideas that ran you know very whatever we may think of it a pretty popular religion for some time whether it is or not now seems to be a question and that he was just hiding out being a paranoid person at the in the last years of his life i find it so sad you know one of the details in the the book, I remember when my own father was, my father was getting very old. My youngest sister, he had very long fingernails, I mean, very long toenails that would sometimes cut his thin skin in the night when he rolled over because they were jagged and sharp. And my youngest sister, you know, took him out on the deck of the house and put his feet into warm water and very lovingly cut those toenails uh, so that they wouldn't carve him up in the night. And one of the things I it just touches me so much to imagine that L. Ron Hubbard did not have that kind of care. You know, he didn't have someone willing to carve his, you know, squirrely, awful, disgusting toenails off so they wouldn't cut him in the night. You know, he he had a different sort of ending. And I, I, I find that um, moving, you know, to imagine and sad to imagine his last years. What's the role of women in Scientology? Is it equal or, or is it are they like subjugated somehow? That's that's a really great question. I think by and large, 
because Hubbard, Hubbard's idea there was that we are spirits, we have bodies, this is talking as a Scientologist, we have bodies, but we are spirits, and we also have minds. So there are three things, and that's not at all unusual. Many religions have something similar. But to that degree, the idea of the spirit for Hubbard, they were genderless. They didn't have a sex to them. Um, so a woman could be, um, you know, she could mount to the top of the top rung of an organization if she were good at her job. That doesn't mean there wasn't sexism of the time that didn't come in there. You know, of course it did. But basically there was no problem in terms of that. However, an interesting thing is they would always be addressed as sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. God, I'll do that right away, sir. Even if it were a woman. And probably more troublingly, and this has been particularly true under Miscavige, is that if you are a member of what's called the Sea Org, which is the group of people that has signed on the, all of this lifetime and presumably the ones to come, um, you are pretty much not, you are not you are actively discouraged. In fact, it might be even enforced to not have children because it gets in the way of your efficiency. So there is that double edge that women are not children are a burden, and so if you're in the Sea Org, it's best not to have them. You know, other people can have them, but best not for you to have them. And so there's an interesting double standard where women are concerned. But in terms of respect, it's, it was equal. You know, there, that was not an issue. But if they see uh, humans as only spirit, then logically, did they have? They shouldn't have a problem with homosexuality. Uh, that would be the case, but they have a huge problem with homosexuality, and curiously, they have a huge problem with abortion, even though. They encourage and even enforce that. That's been proven in numbers of stories to uh, that the Sea Org members have to get rid of children if their their uh, fetuses if they get pregnant. Because logically, you could say, "Well, my spirit feels more female, so I am attracted to, even though I'm a man." <laughs> or I don't know, but that would be such an enlightened way of viewing. And in fact, they view children as just big spirits and small bodies. So that's why children can make decisions to join the Sea Org, I think as young as like eight. They can actually, you know, imagine that. Your your parents say, you know, join the Sea Org, and you go all join the Sea Org, and you're eight years old signing this billion-year uh, contract, which is, of course, absurd. But, you know, there you're signing that contract. And at least for this life, you're giving up your life to... To Scientology, so uh, there were a lot of inconsistent. There were inconsistencies such as that, and I think you make a terrific point with that. If they, if they really thought that the gender didn't matter, or the spirit didn't have a gender, then what does it matter that they, whether they claim themselves that they feel writer as a female or writer as a male, regarding of the genitalia they've been given this lifetime? You know, that would be the enlightened view, I think, but it's not Scientology's view. One thing Scientology is famous for is that it's hard to leave. N not hard psychologically to make the choice, but to actually, you're not allowed to leave. So how was it in your case? No, you're not. Um, I think this is one of those uh, interesting doublespeak issues where, of course, you're allowed to leave. You're allowed to leave. But what and I try to document this and detail this in my book so the reader follows along with 
how you can be persuaded to stay. Because I think a lot of readers are like, that would never happen to me. I would never be brought in that way and I wouldn't I would always be able to have my own mind and leave. Well, I think that's one of the things why it's called a cult. That it makes you think differently and you mistrust the way you think. And little by little that happens to you and one of the ways they do that is to sort of you can sort of see a rightness if like um if you commit a transgression against somebody, often it's hard to be around that person. So you leave them. So you're not hanging out with them because it makes you uncomfortable because you're remembering this bad thing you did to them. So they take that in a wider thing and they say, well, if you want to leave Scientology, you must have done something to make you feel that way. So you're always examining your psyche for the thing you might have done that was bad. And the more that gets trained into you, the more you do it. You're very quick to see, oh, my God. I picked up that dollar bill. I should have left it lying. I mean, to the smallest little thing, you know, oh, I told that white lie. I said I'd I'd actually arrived home at five when I really didn't get in until 510. And you go, oh, my God, that's what I've done. wrong. I mean, the smallest little thing would make you feel like you had, you know, killed somebody or lied or stolen major amounts of money. And with that was a very a noose that tightened and tightened and tightened. That was the hardest thing to wriggle out of, was that way of thinking. But you didn't have to like plan an escape or something like that. No, and one of the points I make in my book, um, it's what made the book hard to sell in the beginning. I'm so grateful to CounterPoint Press for taking it because the publishing companies were looking for scandal because all the Scientology books were filled with people who had to leap electric fences on a motorcycle or concoct this unbelievable escape plan with the help of other people and, you know, had to flee without any of their clothes. It was nothing like that for me because my experience in the church wasn't like that. I had nice, wonderful friends and all I did was I got, I applied for and got accepted to the Iowa Writers Workshop and it was being a, being that far away from Los Angeles and those friends that allowed me to eventually wriggle away. And um, I knew that I wanted that when I applied to that school. So I knew I was doing it for that reason. But I hid that from myself because that would be a bad thing. But ultimately, that's what I was able to do. But I could not be, those friends could not be in touch with me any longer. And I could not be in touch with them. And that was an enormous loss. That was a huge loss. So was it more difficult for you to say goodbye than for them because they weren't aware that you were leaving forever? I don't think they were aware I was I was as divided as I was. I think I kept that largely to myself. So I think when I knew that probably I was seeing them for what might be the last time, they had no idea. And that was a kind of trickery, a kind of acting in a way that I, I think back on now, um, I mean, good for me, it got me out, but I, you know, there was just no way to tell them, or I would have been reported to an organization, and I would have been hauled in for questioning, and they would have said, what have you done to feel this way? Why do you want to leave? And I was sick and tired of that question. I just knew I, I not only wanted to leave, I had to. I wanted to be able to think the thoughts I wanted to think. I wanted to be curious in the way I wanted to be curious. I am avidly interested in issues of spirituality and religion and all kinds of things and 
if you start going down certain of those tracks, it might cause you to doubt the track you're on. I wanted to be able to do that if I wanted to, and I couldn't if I stayed in the Church of Scientology. So that's how I eventually came to be able to have the strength to um, leave. And it was terrible. I had terrible sleepless nights, and I wish there had been the Internet because there's a lot of support on the Internet. But I didn't have any of that at the time. I just, I just sat on my hands when I wanted to make a phone call to my sweetheart, and I, you know, I shredded the letter when I wrote it to my friends, and I, I just did my best to, to, uh, to truly um, make as clean a break as I possibly could. But if you had to trick your own mind and uh, lie, and uh, you know, it still sounds like some sort of prison escape, more like a so- psychological escape, I guess. Yeah, well, you do what you have to do. And of course, one of the things that I appreciate the many years of, of uh, you know, there's a lot of, this book's probably took me five or six years to write. It's just to be able to be so clear about that, you know, to, you know, that's, that's, I think, one of the great values of getting older and inspecting your life is you kind of go, whoa, I certainly behaved in a certain way there. And I see that I did that. But then on the other hand, It's got me to where I am, for better or for worse, you know. So I think, you know, you have to, you just have to do what you have to do sometimes. And I mean, I may have, I mean, I didn't realize I was acting up such a storm until, but, you know, of course I was. And of course, it draws into question also, because the church felt it could see through you if you were um, telling those kinds of secrets. But I, off, I hid it, I not only hid it from them, I hid it from myself. You know, I just, I just, oh no, I'll be back. But somewhere deep and down, I knew I wasn't, you know. That's what's annoying these days in the media is when they always, with politicians and celebrities, they always make a scandal out of some old comment 20 years ago or tweet they made, which has no, like, who cares? I mean, unless it's like uh, evidence of a rape, maybe that's a different, that's a crime. But if it's just an opinion, you can't really... I mean, uh, I would be screwed if they did that to me. <laughs> you know, I've said this and that. <laughs> Are we? Don't you want a politician representing you who's capable of changing his or her mind? <laughs> Isn't that something you want? Isn't a reasonable person somebody who's able to go, "Oh, I thought like that then, but I've I've come to think differently, and this is why." I think that would be a. I would like that person to represent me. You know. Did they ever come after you when they realized you were gone? They there were phone calls, efforts, uh, absolutely. Um, but I basically, um, I basically just, I actually just yelled. I said very loud. I didn't yell. I said very very loudly. I said I do not want to hear from you ever again. And I would put down the phone. And, um, you know, if you're not going to, and then eventually you, I wouldn't pick up if it was a certain phone number. And that was before cell phones when you could block calls and blah, blah. You know, you just, it was, it's very different for people to imagine how different it was. It's very hard for people to imagine how different it was with the technology then and the technology now, because we have so many more, uh, capabilities. Um, but, um, I think one of the things that, um, about the book, as I've said, is really an effort, as I say, made it hard to sell for those, uh, when we went out to those first uh, publishing companies, is that they're looking for the scandal. But I love that the reviews have said how much they appreciate the nuance that 
it allows a reader to understand what would draw a person in, that it it makes it very clear what those ideas, what the ideas are that would be could be found attractive. And in addition to that, I've had fellow ex-Scientologists, friends of mine who were in the church when I was and are now no longer, say to me, you know, you're very fair to the church. So um, it seems like it would be stupid for them to attack you about this book because actually you're, you're actually doing it some favors in allowing people to see what's actually might be interesting and even beneficial about it as opposed to nothing but the horror stories, which is mostly what we get, which is why people think, well, how would anybody ever get involved in that stupid thing in that horrible religion if they weren't just stupid people or emotionally scarred in some way? And my effort is to say, I came from a very loving family. I was an extremely intelligent person. I'd had all kinds of education, so I was very educated, and I found it attractive, and I wasn't alone in that. So who are those who are those people that the church attracts and why is part of why I was, is part of the reason I wrote the book. So they haven't bothered you even when you made this book? Not yet, no. And I hope they will not. I think they're smart enough to realize now if, if you're, if you've studied marketing a bit, then to uh, become upset about somebody's work will just make that person sell more books. <laughs> right. That's a, you know, all, all PR is good PR kind of thing. Yes. Uh huh. So more people buy it. Right. That's actually a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. And I, I think too that, um, yeah, that there's just a, a way that, uh, the church is, um, I think it's, it's wanting to probably, I, I don't know. I can't actually say, I just hope that, that, uh, that that they they don't bug me. <laughs> what what why did you choose that title because it's a very peculiar title for a book I think. I chose it because when you are one of the things Hubbard did was L. Ron Hubbard did was to break things down in their component parts. Um so kind of abstract ideas like communication or happiness or knowledge. He would break them down into component parts that were more concrete. And then you often, you often study in Scientology, which is one of the great gifts that it gave me. I learned how to be a scholar in a Scientology course room, which seems odd, but that's what I try to um, delineate and, and to demonstrate in the book. And one of the things that you'll do is you will sit with a partner and you will drill this sort of uh, aspect of whatever it is, say communication, And you both have the bulletin that has what Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard's written about it. So you both know what you're supposed to do in this drill. And one person's the coach, one person's the student. And the coach, you know, the student, you do the drill. And if the student doesn't do it right, the coach says, flunk, and then start. And you reread, you look at the bulletin again, you see what you're doing wrong, and you do it, start again. And I, at first I was shocked. The word flunk is so harsh. But then I really got used to and rather even admiring of the sort of shorthand of it. It's like, do it again, do it better. So ultimately, the theme of this book is very much about the idea of reclaiming lost years for any reader in any area of their life. It's something I really hope the book helps people to do. And letters to me have indicated that's the case, is the idea that you can flunk something. 
You can fail miserably at some aspect of your life, a marriage or, you know, what you did with years or a job or how you dealt with something or somebody, but that you can actually then start again. And I just appreciate the shorthand um, of a, a much more metaphorical idea that flunk start demonstrates. Flunk start. Just get back on it. Figure out what you did wrong and try not to do it again. You know, do it better. Have you seen this uh, Netflix series, Wild Wild Country? I did, yes. Just recently finished it. I thought it was extremely fascinating because um, if you just concentrate on the actual religion or cult or whatever you want to call it, ignore the drama around it, but it was one of those things where maybe you could draw a parallel to Scientology where it it's actually pretty good at the start, good ideas, good concept, and then it's just like when it becomes too big, like power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely that kind of thing <laughs> it just spirals out of control all the way through watching that i was always like well is it good is it not <laughs> you know it's like it's not black and white the only thing i wish in that is i wish they'd given us more of rajneesh's actual precepts i wish we'd come to understand other than sex is a way to get to transcendent a thing that i wish we'd because i understand he's written many many books Uh, that I wish that we'd had those people, those those very articulate people, speak more clearly to not just that it was lovely to be around him, but what specific teaching they really took with them. That what was it that made them come in? Other than that, I thought the series was superlative, and I think you know the fact that you actually get to be feeling pretty sympathetic to Sheila when you begin to realize the horrible things she did and yet you kind of are sympathetic to her it's like really a- astonishing what they accomplished yeah but maybe that's what it, you require to to make a cult you you need a a leader like Sheila because some people can just do whatever they want and you're still like oh well she's a very nice uh, individual you know like very charismatic uh, so some people just have that That thing. Do you think Hubbard had that? Was he charismatic? Uh, I don't find him so myself when I watch him on video, but I imagine in person that he he probably was with a sweet sense of humor and kind of a great big, you know, garrulous presence. Um, in a way, I think like a Miscavige is almost kind of like a Sheila if we're going to make an, a, a comparison like that. But he Miscavige wasn't around. He was he was a boy when uh, Hubbard or wasn't even born yet when Hubbard. So I think it was he I think that Hubbard had a lot of people around him who were utterly willing to do anything that would um further the aims of the church. And sometimes it curiously not even spiritually. It was like I read some of these stories like you didn't you didn't even know about the spiritual sides of the church. You were just into this leader that you believed in so you would do anything he told you to do and I do find that amazing. I've studied a lot uh, the Second World War, and it's actually very similar to to Hitler, where in fact the 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 most evil people in the Hitler's regime it wasn't really Hitler; it was his people around him, his uh, his generals, and that those were the people who were doing all this crazy stuff. And sometimes I even wondered if Hitler even knew everything that went on. You know, <laughs> like they they were like using him as their uh, 
you know, well, he said this and he said we should do that. Who knows? I, I completely see what you mean, that uh, that a lot was given permission in a way, in a tacit way, some horrific things because of, yeah, who knows? But he had definitely had very efficient minions <laughs> that carried out some diabolical work. No question. Very scary. Very scary. Have you seen the film The Master? Because that is... Uh, deals more directly with Scientology, or even though they don't call it that. But would you say that is fairly accurate in a way, or is it, does it feel distant for you? It felt distant for me, but I um, I appreciated the way they they created the need in the young man's life, and then sort of the father figure that the master seemed to represent, and uh, in some of the you know I my own experience with the drills that they they showed us uh, him there was nothing like that for me but i think it was true for some people in scientology so to me it felt um well it was meant to be a fictional rendition and that's what it was i thought it was effective as as the movie that it intended to be very much so it's terrific i i just didn't i didn't i didn't recognize scientology in it but i thought it was a terrific film you can't really look down on cults because if you think about it, everything is a cult and it's not until you get out of it that you realize it. So maybe the country you live in and the way they, the whole country thinks, that's a sort of cult. You know, everybody agrees on one thing and then maybe if you would leave that country and look back on it, you go, wait, that was a bit strange. Uh, I think that's a great way of thinking. I mean, I make a joke in the book, but it's not totally a joke. You know, that my fam- I think... Families are kind of cults because they teach you a way to think and view the world. And one of the things of growing up is going, oh, actually, I don't have to believe that just because daddy said so. You know, I don't have to act that way just because mom told me that's the way to act. And those they you know, that's I think that we are. Those are the positive aspects of things that they give you some sort of, you know, uh, structure but that I think the unpleasant thing about an actual cult is that it's very hard to leave. It's impossible to get out, you know, and that's what makes things something more scary uh, than, you know, but that's what a lot of religions, you know, if you don't believe or toe the line or do these things, you're out. And that's a shame. And, you know, some families operate that way. Some countries operate that way. You're absolutely right. It's that famous thing where how, how, who do you, how do you know who your father is because your mother told you? You know. Exactly. So if, if people want to read your book, where can they do that? Or if they want to check out your other material? Everything's available on Amazon, uh, as is my CD, if anybody wants to listen to my music. And also there's an audio book of um, Flunk Start as well. I, I got to record it myself. So if people prefer to listen in their car... That's also available. You can get it from Audible, or you can actually get the the CDs of it. And the book itself is um, available Barnes and Noble and Indiebound, which is um, you know for if you prefer to go to an independent route, and uh, hopefully your local bookstore and many libraries. And Amazon also has, and you can also get because they're all mainstream publisher. My novel called Catching Heaven. And my book of writing essays and exercises, which is called Tools of the Writer's Craft. And I'd be happy if you would. <laughs> so it was very 
nice speaking to you and very interesting to hear about Scientology from your perspective. Well, Alex, this has been such a joy to speak with you and I'm so grateful that you would take the time and um, have such good prepared questions. It was really delightful. Well, thank you and uh, uh, for taking part in the podcast. Thank you very much. I shall look forward to doing more research on your podcast and seeing all the all the uh, episodes you have up. Check out uh, her work at uh, sandshall.com and also get her book Flunk Start. Now for some music. Here is the song Sweet Smell of Success by the band Tomahawk from their self-titled debut album, Tomahawk. Check them out and a lot of other cool bands at ipcac.com. That's I-P-E-C-A-C.com. And I also want to um, send all my love to the friends and families of Maestra Maria and Olivia. Freedom is in the mind. Solid gold.